Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. so grateful that you are here. My name is Jeremy. I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor here, and I invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. As you're doing that, we are in week two of a sermon series on the names of God. Uh, This sermon series came about because I was talking with one of my dear friends, Norm Wainer, here in the church last year, and he goes, hey, have we ever done a sermon series on the name of God? And I said, Norm, that is a fantastic idea. Let me write it down. And through thinking and and praying and discerning when and where it might work best, summer is a fantastic time to jump into different names of God and what they teach us about who God is, what he does, and how we can relate to God. And so we are looking at a very, very important name this morning, a very, very important name. I mean, they're all important because they're, they're, they're names of God, but we're looking at the name Yahweh this morning. You'll see up there, Jehovah, or Yehovah, Yahweh, I am. We'll, we'll have a a video in just a minute to kind of give you some of the background between uh, Jehovah and Yahweh and, and how we've gotten those various um, uh, parts of that name. Uh, it'll make sense in just a minute. But as we begin, um, we're going to be looking at different names of God and different stories that are pivotal to these names of God. And Exodus 3 is where we're going to be this morning. And so um, really quickly, uh, we're going to be looking at this name, Yahweh. Perfect. All right. How are you? Good. My battery's dead. Oh, goodness gracious. It'll be okay. Hey, go team. It was full this morning, at least so I thought. So um, this first name, Yahweh, I am. Dustin, go to the next slide for me. Here it is in Hebrew, okay? You have the Yod reading from right to left because Hebrew reads right to left. You have the Yod, Hey, the Vav, and the Hey. In your Bibles, you will see it most of the time like this. You will see it as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. All right, we're not going to look at all the instances because there are 6,826 occurrences of this name in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. Uh, Typically, it's shown as all caps, Lord. Sometimes it is combined with another name of God. And so sometimes it's translated in what I read or what I use most of the time is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Sometimes you will see that in the Holman Christian Standard, it is is actually God. And and if you you have a Holman Christian Standard, for example, at the beginning, they give an an explanation as to why they translate it certain ways. But it is still part of this name, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, in the scripture. Um, It is the personal name of God. It is the covenantal name of God. And it's first used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The Lord God made everything. And he goes on to talk about some other stuff. But it's used in reference in part to creation. It's first invoked, all right? What I mean by invoke here is it's used in worship in Genesis chapter 4 when people begin to call upon the name of the Lord in worship. Um, The biggest thing about this name, kind of its central idea that we're going to look at this morning, is that this name describes how God relates to his people. 
Um, throughout the Old Testament, it is used as the personal name of Israel's God, and we're going to see that in our story today. This is a name that describes how God relates intimately with his people. So it's not just about what God does, it's about who God is and how he relates. Now, as I was doing some study this last week on this name, I came across an incredibly helpful video that gives us some of the history of this name of God, Yahweh. And I want to show you that video right now because they can sum up in four minutes a lot more than I can in four minutes. So Dustin and team, why don't you go ahead and play that video? For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the second key word here. Lord, written in all capital letters, this is the personal name of Israel's God. We first learn the meaning of this name in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And so Moses wonders, what if people ask the name of the God who has sent me? And so God responds, tell them, Ehyeh has sent me to you. Now, that Hebrew word, Ehyeh, means I will be. In other words, God's name means that he is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. But it will sound kind of strange for Moses to go say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. Only God can say, I will be. So in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, he has sent me to you. Now, that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb he will be. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's what's interesting. Over the centuries, Israelites wanted to honor the sacred nature of this divine name. So as they read the Hebrew Bible aloud and they came to this name, they stopped saying Yahweh and instead started saying the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. Now this practice has been continued throughout the centuries, and so later, when people started translating the Bible into English, they adopted the same practice. Instead of spelling out the divine name, they translated it as LORD, spelled in all capital letters. Okay, you got that? Good, because there's more. Ancient Jewish scribes wanted to prevent anyone from even accidentally saying this name aloud when you read the Hebrew Bible. And so they came up with a visual device to remind you to make sure you say Adonai. They took the four consonant letters of the divine name. These letters correspond to our English letters, Y-H-W-H. Then they inserted the three vowels from the word Adonai and combined these together to create an artificial hybrid word, which if you pronounced it, it would say Yahuwah, but no Israelite ever said Yahuwah. It's simply a visual reminder to say the word Adonai. Now, it gets more interesting. Much later, Christian scribes came along who didn't know that Yahuwah was an artificial word. And so they began to say it aloud and spell it in their writings. This is the word that eventually entered into English as Jehovah. It's a word many people still use today. 
But the main thing is, the word Lord in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name. Don't confuse it with the word Lord in your English translations that's not in all capital letters. That is the actual Hebrew word Adon, which just means Lord or Master. This word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even a shepherd over his sheep. And sometimes biblical authors will use this word to refer to God, like in the phrases the Lord of all the earth or the Lord of Lords. But behind all of these words, Jehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel. It refers to the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. When I call you by your name or you call me by my name, what we're doing is we're engaging in a relationship here where, hey, I'm talking to you or I'm talking to you. It's a distinct per person as opposed to speaking to a whole group in general. And the reason why names matter when it relates to God is because God is different than all other beings. Uh, he, he is distinct. And actually, the name that we're looking at today is, very, is a part of God's very being, as you saw a little bit in that video. Uh, the second reason why a name matters is when it comes to the name Yahweh, um, it refers to a name where God relates and identifies with a people in community. When God explains his name to Moses, which we will look at today. He is joining their particular history. He's not joining it because he's already joined it years ago with Abraham, but, but he's recognizing that he is a part of their particular, particular history, and he's even placing himself at the center of the promises that he gave to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another reason why names matter is that names mark a relationship that is intimate. It, it, names are necessary for closeness to occur and to have a deepening of relationship. For example, if you are dating someone, but you do not know their name, I, if we were talking, I would say, you should learn their name before you're dating them. You, you should have this way that you can say, hey, so-and-so, let's have a talk. You, you know, you should have, we should have this, this understanding and this um, relationship where we know each other by our name, and that actually helps us grow more close in relationship. Names also provide a way to initiate relationship and conversation. One of my best friends growing up, his name was Jeremy, okay? You may chuckle. Uh, his name really was Jeremy. He was about 10 months younger than me, and we had the same name. That's one of the things that bonded us together. So one of our very favorite things to do was to be at my house or to be at his house, and one of our moms would say, hey, Jeremy, and we'd say in unison, what? <laughs> and they'd go, oh, which one? And for the first time, it was probably funny to our moms, and for the hundredth time, we still found it pretty funny ourselves. Um, but in having a name to address God, um, God becomes more accessible to us. Not that he becomes completely knowable, not, not that he becomes someone that we fully understand because God is much bigger than us, God is much grander than us, but in giving himself a name by which we can relate with him, God makes himself accessible. Finally, names matter because they increase vulnerability. 
when we have a name for God, you know, one of the, one of the ways that names are used, uh, especially the name of God in today's culture, is, is it can be used for blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. But it can also be used for cursing. Think of the times when you've been at work, at home, outside, at a ball game, and you've heard God's name profaned. Profaned in, in it becoming a different kind of a four-letter word. Um, profaned in that it's said in anger or in um, disgust. In fact, one of the reasons, they kind of talked about this in the video, one of the reasons that, that they've wanted to, the Jewish people have wanted to um, be so careful in not speaking the name Yahweh is because they don't want to take his name in vain in keeping with one of the commandments. And so names are really important. Names are really important. So with all that said, we're going to read from Exodus chapter 3, and I invite you to stand with me as we do so. Exodus chapter 3 is an amazing story. We're going to read the first 15 verses. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, God said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go or walk to Pharaoh, that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? Verse 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Ehe, asher, ehe. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the story of Moses. 
uh, how you've called this man to be a part of your story, your plan, your work. Perhaps, God, he thought that he was insignificant or small in your eyes, and yet you found favor with him, and you called him and empowered and equipped him with your grace and with your strength to be your hands and feet. God, teach us more about yourself today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we are not going to plumb the depths of this name today, because even as we have looked, the name Eche, Asher, Eche, means I will be what I will be. I am who I am. There's a little bit of there's a little bit of we cannot know everything about who God is because God has existed for all eternity. But we are going to do our best to get a glimpse of who God is from this passage. So I want to take you to the place where this is going on, okay? Here is a map of the Sinai Peninsula, which you see in the center. Uh, you see it's part of a wilderness. You have the wilderness of Shur in the north part by the Mediterranean Sea. You have the wilderness of Sin down in the southern part of the Sinai. To the west, you have Egypt. Um, you have all of the Nile Delta and all that stuff going on. To the east, you have a place called Midian. So Moses is a guy who uh, is shepherding his father's flock. But if you don't know much about Moses, there's a couple things you need to know. The first thing is this. Moses was an Israelite. He, he grew up in Egypt. And growing up in Egypt, um, there was an edict given by Pharaoh to kill all of the young boys in, of the Israelites. And so his mom decided that she would not listen to that edict, and she puts him in a basket, sends him down the river, and he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, I believe it was, and he grows up within the courts of Pharaoh. God amazingly and providentially preserves his life. For several years, he grows up as a son of Pharaoh, and essentially an adopted son of Pharaoh. Several years into his life, he realizes, hey, I'm not Egyptian, I'm an Israelite. And skipping over a whole bunch of stuff, he ends up killing an Egyptian who's beating one of his fellow Israelites. And then he, the next day, is talking to two Israelites who are arguing with one another. And they said, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And he goes, oh no, I thought no one saw that. So Moses is a is essentially an adopted aristocrat who is also a murderer who finds out that Pharaoh wants to um, take care of him uh, because of what he has done. And so he flees, and he flees from Egypt over into the region of Midian. So you can kind of see where Midian is. Um, and that's where he finds um, Jethro and his daughters. He marries one of Jethro's daughters in the course of all of this going on. And he is shepherding the flock of his father, Jethro, the priest of Midian, in verse 1 of our passage today. So you see where Midian is. He's going to be going somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula here. There's a couple of um, traditional places where we think this is at. One of them, it says Mount Sinai or Jebel Musa, which is in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula here down uh, kind of between the two arms of the Red Sea, if you can see that. So there's roughly where he's at, where he's shepherding. Here's what it looks like. 
All right, he, he's down in the dry desert. All right, he's taking his sheep and they're eating these little tufts of grass. They're, they're being sustained by just what God has for them that day, but you can tell there's not a ton of water there. And so shepherding is a hard, hard job. Here's another photo that kind of gives you a picture of this, uh, of this area. This is the plain of Er-Raha. And so you can imagine that Moses who's about, you know, 80-ish years old at this point. He lives the first part of his life, the first 40 years or so in Egypt. He lives the next 40 years or so in Midian and shepherding his father's flock. And he comes to the end of that, of that part of his life, and he sees something. And it says here that he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. All right, so, so at the beginning here, he sees this bush that's burning. But what catches his eye, um, verse 3 says, is that Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight because the bush is burning, but it's not burning up. All right, you get a dry area like this for something to catch fire, not crazy. But for something to catch fire and it not be consumed, his interest is pricked. And we know from verse 2 that it's the angel of the Lord who appears to him. The, the, the Lord appears to him in, in a bush, and Moses is taken in. So God sees him come over, and I, I just find that interesting in verse 4. When the Lord, Lord saw that he had gone over to look, so, so, so God's there and God's watching. He's waiting for Moses to respond to his redemptive initiative or his initiative of relationship with him. The Lord saw that Moses comes over to look. At that point, God calls out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. So just imagine here, okay? You're out. You're in the middle of nowhere, roughly. You're tending sheep, and you see a bush, and it's burning, and it's not being burned up, and all of a sudden the bush or something around the bush is talking to you. Would you be a little unnerved, perhaps? <laughs> God's talking to him, and he calls him Moses, Moses. Now, it's interesting. Every time a prophet is called in the Bible, it's, or not every time the prophet is called, but one of the, one of the foremost ways a prophet is called in the Bible, I should say it that way, their name is repeated twice. Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul. God comes to him. And he says his name not just once. He says it twice. And Moses responds to the bush that's burning but is not being burned up, here I am. He's having an encounter with the divine. Now, I find it fascinating. Moses does not go out to find God. Yahweh comes to him. Moses is 80 years old. He might be thinking, I'm going to just shepherd until the end of my life here. And he is going to shepherd till the end of his life, but he's not going to shepherd sheep for the end of his life. God comes to him at the age of 80. You know, in the Bible, in the story of Samuel, Samuel's a young lad when God comes to him and he says, Samuel, Samuel, right? He's young and he's calling him to service. God comes to Paul. We've looked at Paul a little bit the last couple months as we've studied Galatians. Paul's probably in his 20s, 30s, somewhere around in there. I, I didn't do the math, so you can go double check me on that later. But he's not a, a young, nor is he an old man at this point. And God comes to him in a vision on the road to Damascus, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, God calls. 
and Moses says, here I am. And then God responds again. He says, take off your sandals. It is holy ground. And then he goes to say this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the God of his father. Not, not, not his father in Egypt, not, not, not the one who essentially had adopted him into his Egyptian family. He is the God of his people. And the God of their father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers. And when God says this, it says that um, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Even God's presence manifested in a burning bush in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula is too much for Moses to look at. I cannot begin to describe to us the amazing, awesome glory of God. But this is the glory of God revealed to Moses. Elsewhere in Scripture, you know, Mo Moses wants to see God's presence in several chapters later. I think it's Exodus 34. And God says, I will show you the trail of my presence. That's how amazing and splendor-filled and glory and brilliant God is. But notice what God says in verse 7. Moses is hidden his face because he doesn't want to look at God. In verse 7, the Lord said, capital L-O-R-D there, I have observed my people in Egypt. All right? The, the Lord said. Here he's using the covenantal name of God, and he's using it properly, as God does. He's using it, and he's saying, I have seen my people. All right? Moses had killed a man because he had seen how his people were oppressed and beaten and in slavery, and he'd sought to do something about it. But here God says, hey, I've seen, he does not say, I've seen the misery of your people. He says, I've seen the misery of my people. Because God has taken responsibility for these people. And he has promises that he has forgiven to the patriarchs, ones that he himself will keep. And in verse 8, God promises that he will come down. He's heard their cry. He's heard their misery. And he will bring them out into a good and spacious land. A land that had previously been a part of God's covenant promise to Abraham. That Abraham and his descendants would live in and dwell in forever. In verse 9, God says, I have heard my people's cry. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me. And I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So even in these first verses, God is essentially saying, I know what's going on. I know why you're here. I know what you've done. I know what is happening to my people, and I have not forgotten. I am actually come to do something about it. And he reminds this by reminding Moses of this covenantal name, this name of relationship. God has heard Israel's cry, he has taken notice, and he has come to rescue. Now, I love it because um, sometimes I think rescue should happen in my time, and in my plan, and in the way I think it should happen. Here, God has waited hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Why? I don't fully know. There's a certain thing that is going on with the people of the land that he's waiting for the, the cry and the wickedness of the people of, of, not the people of Israel, but the people who live in the area of Israel for, for there to be a certain wickedness to come. But, but there's, there is years and years and years of hard, hard living that, 
the children of Israel have experienced. But in the midst of this trial, God has not forgotten them. He has not forgotten his promise. And it reminds me that God's timing and his program is much bigger than my own. Sometimes I think, God, why won't you do something now? Now would be a perfect time for you to step into this. And God, I think sometimes is saying, be patient. I'm working even if you don't think I am. I'm moving even if you think I am still. I have not forgotten you. Now, you might think, or we might think that, you know, God coming down saying, hey, I've heard their cry. I'm here to do something about it. Moses probably thinking, all right, God, what are you going to do about this? And verse 10, it says, therefore go, because I'm sending you to Pharaoh. And here you have a roughly 80-year-old man who has been spending the last 40 years of his life shepherding a flock in various regions around Midian, who is now being asked, commissioned, and called by God to go to the world's leading superpower to say, by the way, Yahweh wants you to let his people go. And you can imagine, at least I can imagine, that um, after all of these things, Moses is going, what? Because that's essentially what he says. You know, he doesn't say what. He says, after God says, here, I want you to go lead my people out, the Israelites out of Egypt. God, Moses says to God in verse 11, he says, who am I that I should go? You know, why me, essentially, is what he might be saying. Imagine, God has just told you to go rescue your people and to go head-to-head with the leader of the known world. It would be like you or I going to the president saying, hey, by the way, this is what God tells you to do. That takes a serious amount of chutzpah uh, or um, gall or uh, fortitude, you might say. Moses does not say, God, I'm on it. His response is typical for many of us. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Now, it's interesting because when he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, he's asking an average question that we might ask. But when God responds to it, he doesn't say, Moses, don't you know who you are? He doesn't say, hey, you have 40 years of experience in Egypt. Hey, you have 40 years of experience in the wilderness. He doesn't say that at all. He responds this way. Don't miss it. God responds in verse 12. He says, I will certainly be with you. So Moses says, who am I that I should go? And God says... I will be with you. I will be with you. Because Moses is asking the wrong question. But the question that many of us ask a lot of times. When we say, what, who, me? God says, I will be with you. It's not who Moses is that matters. It's who God is that matters. And it matters that God has called, commissioned, And he will be with Moses. The question is not, who is Moses? The question is, who is with Moses? And God is calling Moses into divine service. If it rests on Moses' ability to free these dear people of God from slavery, then Moses and all the people around might begin to think that Moses actually had something, something significant and powerful to do with it. But if it's God's presence with Moses, what comes at the end of this story is the glory of God. What comes is the glory of God. There is a much bigger battle going on here than the one that Moses and Pharaoh are going to engage in. The bigger battle is this, God versus evil. 
God and keeping his promise versus all the things that want to keep God from keeping his promise. Yet, what is promised to Moses is not, hey, you're great, you've got this, you can do it. All right? It's not like you're at a Little League game, you're like, come on, hit that ball, you can do it. God responds and reminds him with this promise, no, I'm with you. I am with you through this entire experience. In fact, he says it this way. He says, certainly, in the Hebrew it says that. It says, certainly, I will be with you. All you need to accomplish what God has given you to do, Moses, is God himself. Now, let me stop there for a moment, because there's a lot of things that God calls us to as people. And I think sometimes we say, God, there's no way I could do that. There's, there, there's no way I could share that bit of truth with my brother. There's no way that I could confront this injustice or injustice that is going on in this network of friends. God, there's, there's no way that I could go do that job that you have called me to do. It's way beyond my pay grade. It's way beyond my knowledge. But the truth of God found over and over and over in the Bible is this. If God has called you and I to something, God will equip you for what you need. How many of you, uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever faced a trial in work or in home or in family and you're going, God, I'm really struggling with where I'm at right now. And, and you haven't gotten there because of sin or something like that in your life. All right? You, you just find yourself faced with challenge after challenge after challenge, and you're beaten down. And you don't feel like you can take the next step. In those moments, God comes to you and he says, don't worry. I'm with you. Certainly, I will be with you. Now, if we find ourselves in areas and issues where we're going against God and we're sinning against God, the right response there is to repent and say, God, where do you want me to be? Because sometimes we do that too. Um, as a kid, um, I, I remember at a very young age telling God in prayer, you know, speaking to God and, and saying, God, I never will be a pastor. No joke. I've said this, like, to God. And one of the things I've learned is every time I say, God, I will never, then somehow, some way, God seems to bring that as a part of my life through challenge, through trial, through conforming and changing my heart. Because it's not about something that God has called us to. It's about what God has given, namely himself, for us to do what he has called us to. All you and I need to accomplish what God has given us to do is God himself. Some of you... Uh, have recently become married. I know because I've officiated a couple weddings. Some of you are about to become married. You're entering into a covenantal commitment in which you're going to find that there's going to be many, many great days, and you're going to find some really challenging days, whether it's interpersonal stuff, whether it is work stuff, whether it is family stuff, and you're going to go, oh, this is just hard. In those moments, I want you to remember God is with you. God is giving you what you need to walk after him. 
Some of you uh, have recently graduated high school or college, and you're going into what is next for you. Some of you are moving across the United States. Some of you are staying local. Some of you are engaging in, in different programs and in training that are going to equip you to be a, a helpful, productive member and, and contributing person to society. But you're going to have challenges. Challenges with moving out, and trust me, your mom and dad are going to have challenges with, with you moving out too because they're going to miss you dearly. In those moments, as you're following God's call upon your life, remember, certainly, God is with you. There will be hard times, but that promise is sure in the midst of all these things. You might be facing older age. You might be facing health issues and wondering, God, how am I going to manage this? Your, your parents might be facing health issues, and you're going, God, how am I going to help my parents navigate this? Surely, God is with you. Certainly, he is with you. Moses is given this promise, and this promise is central to so much of God's teaching in his word. If I've called you to it, I will give you the grace to walk today. In fact, as we've looked at in prior weeks, my power can be made perfect even when you think you are weak, is what God says later in the New Testament. So Moses receives this promise from God, certainly I will be with you. But then he's also given a sign to know that God will be with him. Verse uh, 12 in the latter part says, uh, and this will be the sign to you that I've sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. So they're at the mountain in Sinai, okay? They're in this region right here. And he says, by the way, you will know that it was I who did this when you come back from going to Pharaoh, leading the people out. And there's a whole bunch of story that goes on there, a whole bunch of trial and tribulation that goes on there. But you will know that it was I who did it because you will come back to this mountain and we will have another chat. All right. So Moses is experiencing this incredible provision and promise of God. So he's given the promise. He's given the sign. And then Moses, in verse 13, he asks for a name. He, he says, now, if I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And here's where this name of God comes in play. Um, now, names in the ancient world, one scholar says, were believed to be intimately connected to the essence of an individual. Knowing a person's name gave knowledge of their nature and an understanding of their power. In fact, there's, there's many lowercase g gods in the Egyptian society and the societies around. And every god had a name. And to know their name meant that you could engage with them in some way and maybe try to have power over them. God gives his name to Moses, not because anyone will have power over him, but to give him an understanding of his identity, the identity of the God calling him into service. And he gives him this name, and it's Eche Asher Eche. Can you say that with me? Eche Asher Eche. That's just a fun one to say, so I had to put it there. And it means essentially this, I am who I am. And you go, okay, what does that mean? 
It can also be translated, I will be what or who I will be. A share can mean who or what or which in the Hebrew. Here, I think it's best understood as who because we're referencing a being. But I will be who I will be. I will cause to be what I will cause to be. It can also be translated, I will be who I am. I am who I will be. And it's kind of like when you get one of those words and you're like, I wonder what that word means. And you go to the dictionary and they define the word by the same word that you're looking up. Have you ever experienced that? That is so maddening to me. It's like, it's like dictionary.com gone wrong or something. And like, hey, you know, couch means couch or something like that. Okay, thank you very much. I don't think it actually does that for that word. But so you have this a little bit of, mm, what does God mean by this? What does it mean that I am who I am? What does it mean I will be who I will be? What does it mean that I will cause to be what I will cause to be? What does it mean that I will be who I am or I am who I will be? I really like um, how one scholar writes it. He he writs this. Uh, He prefers the latter one here, the I will be who I am, I am who I will be. And he says, the last noted, which is that one, may well be the best option. And in essence, it is saying this, I will be God for you. All right? I will be God for you. And in a culture in which we try to create all of our own gods, all of our own powers or objects of worship, God is essentially saying, I will be God. That one whom you worship and whom you serve and whom you love and whom you have a relationship with, I am that for you, Moses. I am that for the children and the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom you are going to go out and redeem by my strong arm. I will be that for all the promises that I will fulfill, even to the point of sending my son, who is God incarnate, to be who I will be for you, a redeemer. One, um, one writer says, the force of the name is not simply that God is or that God is present, but that God will faithfully be God for them in the history that is to follow. And in verse 16, we see the history that is kind of being um, brought into this story. Um, Dr. Everett Fox, another way you could translate this, I like this one too. Everett Fox translates it as the being their God. The being their God. And so Moses' natural response in hearing what God is calling him to do is to say, not me, God. But in his attempts to dismiss and say, God, I can't do it because of this. And God, I can't do it because of this. He does this five times. And four of the five times is Moses begins to make uh, an excuse for why he is insufficient. God simply responds in four of these five times, I will be there for you. I will be there for you. Have you ever faced a moment in your life and you're like, God, I can't. I want to say to you, God is a God who is there. We may not fully understand why we're walking the path we're walking or why we have experienced the things that we've experienced. But at the core of God's name is this truth. I am the being there with you, God. And for God, that is sufficient. And I submit to us that it should be sufficient for us as well. The being there, God. There are many things that God has called us to. Um, one of the ways in which God calls 
followers of Jesus, we find in Matthew chapter 28, when it says, um, therefore go, Jesus is talking to his disciples, whom he's about to leave, and they won't see him again until he returns in glory one day. And he says, by the way, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go, and as I go, I'm leaving you with a commission. He writes it this way. He says, therefore go. He says it this way. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, he gives them an incredible call, you know, therefore go, and, and really the word there is in your going, as you go to school, as you go home, as you come to church, and you gather with the people of God here, as you leave here and you go and you celebrate Father's Day with your burger or steak or whatever it is that is happening later for you, as you go, Jesus is calling his disciples to make disciples, which is a pretty big task. You know, to, to, to think that God has entrusted his people, us, with the task of helping other people follow Jesus. He says, go therefore, in your going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey everything I've commanded you. But at the end of it, he says this, and remember, I am with you. I'm with you to the end of the age. Why? Because Jesus understands this principle of who he is and who the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are. They're the being there God. And the work God has called us to do today, tomorrow, and in this, this season of our life, God is the being there God who wants to walk and who will walk with us. Not only there, you find it in Acts 1.8. You know, Jesus is sending out his disciples again to, to, be, to be witnesses. It says... Uh, in Acts 1, verse 8, don't want to misquote it. Let me just pull it up really quick. He says, the disciples are asking him, and they say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? They, they, they think the end of the age has come. And Jesus responds to them, and he says, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power. How does that power come? The Holy Spirit, God with us the being their God. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's the being their God. The God who walks with us and what he has called us to do in making disciples of all nations, in walking with our families and discipling our kids, in working through conflict with coworkers or working through conflict with spouses. He's called us to walk but to recognize that certainly he is the being there God who is with us. Um, perhaps one of my favorite pictures of this name of God um, is, is an example that um, a friend of mine, um, George DeYoung, who we traveled to Israel with several years back, gives. Every time he talks about this name of God, he says it this way, and I'll personalize it for myself. Um, I, I have many names that I am called, all right, in life. I, I have, as a kid, sometimes I was just called Cobb in, in school. Sometimes I'm called by my first name, Jeremy. Sometimes I'm called uh, Pastor Jeremy. Uh, sometimes uh, people call me up and they say, Mr. Jeremy Cobb, is he there? And I go, no, he's not. <laughs> um, some, some people call me Reverend Cobb, and I say, hey, back it up. <laughs> um, 
I'm called a lot of different things. But there's a very special, unique relationship that I have with three people. A personal relationship. A covenantal relationship. And that's kind of what this name Yahweh means. There's three people in this world who can call me dad. When God says, by the way, I'm the God who is there for you. By the way, I'm the God who has promised that I will certainly be there with you and that I will walk with you. He comes not as a tyrant or anything like that. He comes as a father. The Jewish people understood God to be their father. It was not a shock necessarily when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching them to pray. He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven. Because in a good father-son relationship, I recognize there are not good father-son relationships. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. I have people in my own life who, who don't know what it means to have a loving father. But God is the ultimate example of a father who loves, cares, corrects, and walks with his people. There's three people in this world who can call me dad. That's the kind of intimacy that is meant when God says, my name is Yahweh. I am the being there God with you. Um, several months ago, I was talking with someone and uh, re recounting a story from my childhood. Forgive me if you've maybe heard this one before. Um, my parents live out in the country and they live, uh, you know, yeah, they live out in the country. And one day I was um, mouthing off or something to my parents. I was middle school age and I had a temper like none other. And I said something and my dad stopped the car and we're out on a country road. And he said, he looked at me and he said, get out. <laughs> I got, this was years ago, you know, there was not a lot of traffic. He says, get out. And I said, I was hopping mad. And so I get out and I begin to walk the rest of the mile home. It was about a mile from our house. I still remember the point at which it was right before a corner, which is right down the, uh, another street, which is right down then the lane. I had about a mile walk ahead of me. After I got out, I was ready to walk home by myself. I was old enough to walk home by myself. But before I knew it, my dad was out of the car as well. And I'm going, oh no, why is he coming with me? My mom slides over to the driver's seat. I'm in trouble. I know I'm in trouble. I know I've crossed the line. I know I have offended probably everyone in the car with something I've said. But in that moment, my dad did not leave me to walk the mile home by myself. Um, my, my father is a man of few words. Uh, when he's excited about something, you know it, but he, he doesn't just like talk all the time. And I don't know that we said much of a word the entire walk home. But I will tell you, 30 years later, no, 20, 27 years later or so, what I remember is not what was said. What I remember was even though I was acting like a middle school child sometimes incorrectly acts. My dad was with me. That's the kind of father example that God is giving, though in a much grander way. When he says to Moses, surely I will be with you.
Where in your life are you looking for something to replace God? And you're trying to walk in your own strength. You're trying to walk according to your own abilities. You're trying to walk according to your own knowledge. I ask you this morning, I urge you this morning, wherever you find yourself, would you yield to God and say, God, I don't want to walk this by myself. I want to walk it with you. Maybe that means that today you need to have an honest conversation about what it means for God to be your Savior, your Lord, and your Father. Maybe that means today you're, you're a follower of Jesus, but you're walking in a different path. Wherever you find yourself, know this. The scripture says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. That's a promise you can take to the bank today. Let's pray together. Lord, there are so many ways in which we, we approach life and we think that we are going to go in and of our own strength or we think, God, that we are inadequate for the things before us that you have allowed to happen. I thank you, our Father, that you are with us, that you are the being there, God, the God who cares, the God who loves, the God who redeems, the God who rescues. But God, that you are the being there, God. It would be one thing if you rescued us from our sin, but it's a whole other thing that you come and you dwell within our hearts through faith and trust in your son, Jesus. And God, I, I pray today, if there is someone here who has not come to faith and trusted that Jesus and Jesus alone, through his death and resurrection, can rescue and redeem, my God, I pray that you would do a work in their heart to bring them to faith and trust in you. And God, for those of us who, uh, who like to sometimes in our own arrogance, in our own pride, or even in our own um, lack of, of, of confidence or lack of self-awareness, we, we want to walk in a different path because we don't want to receive or accept what you have for us. God, would you remind us today that you are with us? Through the joys and the struggles, God, would you remind us that you are with us? And God, even as we go out to this world that is broken around us, God, as you walk with us, would you remind us that the work you're doing in our lives is something that can be preached by how we live to those around us with great power. Thank you, God, that you did not, you did not think it beneath you to make yourself low and to reveal yourself to us. But God, that you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son that whosoever believes will not perish but have eternal life, life with the Father, life walking in relationship with Yahweh. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to, to all of you dads out there. Uh, I urge you, if you haven't called your dad yet today, I haven't because I've been here all morning, but um, uh, I urge you to go ahead and reach out to your dad if you're able to do that today and to speak words of blessing and words of life into their lives. Um, a couple of things before we close. The first one is this. Um, we have a Montana team leaving in, what, about 10 days? Something like that? 
No one's, okay. Something like that. I, I know people's schedules vary. Some people are leaving this week. Some people are leaving the week after. They're going to be gone the first week of July doing some work out in Montana with our mission partners, Dale and Jill Stewart. And so uh, I just want to remind us of that so we can be praying for them. Some of them are traveling 26 plus hours one way in a car to head out there. Some of you are flying. Um, bless you for flying. And we will be praying for you this week and next week as you get ready to go and get your final stuff put together. Um, also, next week during our 11 a.m. hour, we're going to be having a students and parents meeting to give an update on where we're headed for student ministry with Pastor Cameron's transition coming uh, in late July as he as he goes on to what God is calling him into next. Um, we will be talking about that next Sunday at 11 a.m. and praying together and seeking the Lord together. So if you're a parent, student, invite you to that next Sunday at 11 a.m. Um, in July, I was, I was hoping to, in June, give you an update from my recent mission trip overseas. Uh, it did not work for this week and next week for various reasons. So July 18, God willing, I plan to for those of you who are not on vacation that day and such, would love to have you join us in person in this room. Uh, I've got some photos to show and tell you about what God is doing over on the other side of the Mediterranean. And then uh, finally, I'll just urge you with this. Um, as you have the opportunity, as God gives you the opportunity this summer to be the church, the, the, the church is a people, not a building. The church is a people. As you have the opportunity to be the church in our community, um, do so with great intention. Love Jesus and share his work in you as you go forth in all of your things, whether that's finishing up a little league, whether that's doing summer activities, whether that's going about the normal of work and all that kind of stuff. Remember there are people around us who need to hear and need to experience the life that only Jesus can offer. And that's why we exist, to know Christ personally, but also to make him known. So would you stand with me as we bless God and we finish today? May the Lord, Yahweh, bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, Yahweh, lift up his countenance towards you and give you his peace. As you remember this week that God is a God who is there. He is the being there God who wants and is there in whatever you and I face today. Go with God. Blessings. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.